0: Hey, podcast listeners, another awesome and timely show for you today. Our guest is co-founder and CEO of Plush Care, a startup offering personalized, high-quality health care from top U.S. medical doctors from the ease of a smartphone. In today's episode, we're getting into a hot topic in this pandemic environment, telehealth. We start by hearing the origin story behind Plush Care and the agony and ecstasy of being a startup entrepreneur. Our guest shares his personal experience of receiving fully digital support and medical care from a friend who is a Stanford doc, and the realization that only 1% of Americans can afford the price tag of a concierge doctor, and pursuing the opportunity to democratize the model, making it widely available to all. We walk through the experience Plush Care provides patients and physicians, and the emphasis on investing a lot on the physician side of the business. We cover the experience of navigating COVID as a telehealth provider, and the need to increase physician capacity four X. We get into the state of the industry and our guests' thoughts about this being the future of patient-physician relationships and the vision for the company going forward. Also, if you check out plushcare.com, you can see that they offer free COVID antibody testing. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YChart's report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Plush Care's Ryan McClain. Ryan, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Meb. Fantastic to be on.
0: I see you have your coronavirus beard, as do I. Everyone seems to be going one of two ways. They either just grow everything out or they capitulate like I did and shaved my head and grew out a beard. So where are you quarantining in place at?
1: I am quarantining in
0: San Francisco
1: in the marina with my wife, two kids, and two dogs. So hopefully none of them are making noise in the background.
0: Goodness. I've spent a lot of time in that part of the world. I lived in San Francisco and Tahoe in the early 2000s. So my jogging route was right down by Chrissy Field on out to the bridge and back. Love that city. Used to get up a lot. Haven't been down there in quite a while. But LA is not so bad either. Okay, we're going to talk about a lot of fun stuff today, all things telemedicine. I've been following you guys since at least, I think, 2015, 2016, but I actually don't know your origin story, so let's rewind a little bit. You're originally a cow guy?
1: Yep, I grew up here in the Bay Area, went to high school in San Francisco, and then went over to Berkeley for college and was on the crew team there walked on the football team my freshman year and i had several concussions prior to that got another two concussions and that was it that were the end of my sports days
0: i had a buddy who did grad school at cal and i have some fond memories of trying to play frisbee golf on their course right along the water there and remember going full 10 cup and losing probably, I don't know, like five, six, seven Frisbees on one hole over the water. And there was some young enterprising guy that just sat there all day, six pack of beer selling Frisbees for like 10 bucks each. And so learned a lot of lessons there. Okay. You came out of Cal, decided football career in the NFL is not for you. What next?
1: When my athletic days ended, I got into day trading, which looking back, It was essentially gambling. (laughs) This was in the days of, I think, around 2006. Uh, I got a bouncer job at a bar there called Kips, started making some money and opened up an E-Trade account and learned about margin trading. So again, this was 2006 when you could declare whatever you wanted your income to be, thus I did so. Also went down to the bank and pulled out a loan to trade on that as well. And I can't say it was the skill. I think the market generally was going up. And I did incredibly well. Took those funds. I got kind of boring waking up at the same time every morning looking at computers and decided to roll that into a motor scooter business. We saw as as a student athlete, everybody had a scooter and gas prices were rising. There were imports coming in from China, so these were scooters similar to like a Vespa scooter. And what we identified was you had very cheap, low quality Chinese scooters coming into the US market on one end, and on the other end you had Vespas, which were like the Ferrari of scooters. And so my co-founder and I, we said, let's go to China and get an exclusive relationship with a factory tell them to use stainless steel screws and stuff that doesn't just break apart. And that's what we did. We started importing them. It was an incredible time as far as the power sports industry goes. And unfortunately, we ran into the recession in 2008. Power sports industry got crushed. We decided to liquidate the business. And that's when I moved on to AT&T into a management training program, had multiple roles. The first role was actually being responsible for the network from San Jose down to Big Sur. And it was a union environment. I was 21, 22 years old, managing people that were over twice my age and didn't like a youngster coming in telling them what to do. So it was an absolutely incredible experience. I still remember vividly in our Monterey location, I got into a little bit of a tussle with one of the employees and it just opened up my eyes of management in a very fast way from there i got more into the business kind of internal strategy side of at t took a job focused on digital health uh, so strategy and bd for digital health that's where i got a keen understanding of the healthcare ecosystem both from a b2c perspective and also a b2b perspective and During that experience, I actually had an illness myself that got to the point where I would get up in the morning and I literally would have to crawl to the kitchen. I would be in so much pain. And a friend of mine, he was a Stanford physician, said, hey, dude, you're in your mid to late 20s. This isn't normal. (laughs) You need to get this handled. And so I, like 50% of Americans, I didn't have a primary care provider, so I didn't know where to go. And he took on that relationship in a digital capacity. So he ordered me a diagnostic test, ordered me imaging, had some suspicion about what might've been going on with me, but referred me into a specialist to confirm. And it ended up being, I had an autoimmune disease that I could get on Humira. It's a drug manufactured by AbbVie. I'm sure everybody's seen commercials for it. And within three weeks, my life was back to normal. It was absolutely incredible. And so throughout that experience, what we identified was 1% or less of Americans are fortunate enough to pay $10,000 a year for a concierge doctor. And another probably similar percent are fortunate enough to have a friend or family member that's an amazing physician who's gone to Harvard, Stanford, Yale, et cetera. And so we took a step back and reflected and said, well, what happens if we can provide this service and democratize it for every American for the same price that you pay for Spotify or Netflix? And so that's what we set out to do. We commercially launched in 2015, and it's been a pretty incredible ride since then
0: we're going to dive deep into that. I was smiling as you were making some of these revelations and it was funny cuz I was like you're only slightly too early the day trading has now returned with stool presidente bar stool trading the market. It's largely cuz there's no sports going on, but I was also smiling one because when I lived in San Francisco, a couple of my friends had Vespas But second, it's like you were slightly too early for the big scooter craze that's now over the past five years taken over the world. But you seem to have found the right niche for you. And as is so often the case with entrepreneurs, there is some sort of personal experience that just sucks so bad or is just so obviously wrong that you're like, clearly someone needs to be doing this better. This cannot go on the way that it is. And Unfortunate, you had to go through the health experience you did, but it's fascinating to see that kind of going through that became part of the impetus for for Plush care. All right, so you got the idea. What next?
1: So when we had the idea, I went to a guy I knew. I told him I was leaving AT and T. He was a CEO of a marketing agency, and he said, "Hey, whatever you're working on, I want to be the first check." And so that was the first check to get started. We did it in an incredibly bootstrapped way. I coded together a WordPress site mixed in with web services so people can have their first interaction. And my co-founder was a physician, and so he was the one seeing patients. I was customer support, so it was completely bootstrapped. We were revenue generating from day one. And I think given that bootstrap nature, from day one, we've been so obsessed about providing patients what we consider a wow experience. So not a good experience, but going above and beyond in any possible way. So we can ensure that they remember us as people treating them not as a number, but again, going along the lines of a concierge provider, but for an affordable price.
0: Walk me through that experience, because let's say someone today is listening to this and they go to the website, download the app. How does it work? Give me kind of the patient side, and then we can dive into the back end doctor side too.
1: We've made it super simple. So you can either go to the website, download the app. You pick a primary care provider that you're gonna have a relationship with. So you can see, you can pick it based on gender, where they've done their training, where they have the most experience. And you'd pick an appointment with that individual. You then are able to put in your insurance information. So we do a real-time insurance check of what your copay is. It would be the same primary care office visit copay that you go into the doctor in person, which is a pretty big innovation itself. You go into the doctor today, you don't know what you're going to pay until you get a bill 90 days later in the mail. So we tell you what you're going to pay. And then at the time of your appointment, your cell phone rings like a FaceTime call, and you have a chat with the doctor. All of our physicians are trained at the top 50 US medical schools and on average have 15 years of experience. So, again, really want to provide an amazing experience to patients. And you tell them what's going on. So, visit reasons are episodic urgent care visit reasons, or they could be preventative. So, I want to make sure I'm not pre diabetic or want to take a proactive approach to my health, or they could be for chronic conditions. So, if you have diabetes or hypertension, Our physicians can manage your ongoing health just like a regular in-person primary care provider would. And then that doctor is assigned to you on an ongoing basis. You can message them in our app along with the medical assistants or nurses that are part of your care team. And again, it's super easy.
0: You mentioned, alluded to it earlier, but what's the general business model for Plus Care? Is it subscription-based? Is it based on number of visits. How's it work?
1: Yeah, so it's a combination of both. We charge a monthly subscription. So it's $14.99 a month. And then in addition to that, if you have a video consultation with a doctor, we'll charge you your copay. On average, that's $20. And then we bill the insurer for the remainder amount. So typically for a visit, we're making about over $100 per visit.
0: On the doctor side, talk to me a little bit about that. I feel like this is a pretty new world of telemedicine. How has the experience been for, I've listened to a few doctors that work with you guys describe it, but for the audience, how has sort of their experience changed? Anything positive, anything negative? And just mainly, what are the big differences between working with Plush Care versus traditional primary care?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. As I mentioned, we've taken this approach of having super high pedigree physicians, and that was to gain consumer trust with a new modality of care. What that strategy has also done is it's been a recruiting magnet to get other amazing physicians. The old saying goes, A players want to work next to A players. And so we have doctors that have known about telehealth for 15 or 20 years, but have viewed it as kind of call center doctors. And so we have changed that Perspective for physicians. And if you talk to our physicians, they, similar to patients, physicians are burnt out. Just like patients feel like they're getting treated like a number, physicians feel like they're treating patients like numbers. And they're just on this never ending wheel where they just can't have a good relationship with patients. And so, working with plush care, we pay them a salary so they're not. Worried about the number of patients that they see or on an hourly basis. And we have on the back end created our own electronic health record. We've taken over all the billing. So, all the administrative bullshit that doctors typically have to deal with, we have removed that from them. And so they can just focus on creating a strong relationship with patients. And you combine an amazing pedigree of physicians. We go through extensive interview processes to ensure they have great bedside manner and are providing amazing care. So you take those two and then you remove all the administrative burden and you're able to deliver a a 90 net promoter score experience. And that's what we have today, which is off the charts, as I'm sure you know.
0: That's incredible. What's the sort of target demo? Are you guys available across the country or only in a few states?
1: We're available across the country.
0: And What's the target demo? Because I feel like this may be even a little bit surprising. Is it kind of across the board? Is it urban? Is it families? Is it tend to be individuals? Is it rural? What's the sort of use case for most of the patients?
1: The median age is 40 years old, which I think skews on the older side than people would typically think. They think seeing a doctor over your smartphone, I think people typically think patients are 20 to 30 years old. So median age is 40 years old. About 65% are female. And if you look at the in-person visits, those are actually similar numbers. So we are seeing that virtual visits are just somewhat of a reflection of in-person visits, which is strong validation that we're not targeting some super niche population. And as far as where people live, there's a value proposition. If you're in San Francisco and you don't want to drive to park and find parking, pay $30 for parking, and then sit in the doctor's office where it's filled with germs. You're gonna be wasting time getting there, you're gonna be wasting time sitting in the office. So, there's a fantastic value proposition in an urban environment. Go to the opposite side of the spectrum in a rural environment, there just isn't a doctor's office. So, we are seeing similar penetration no matter whether somebody lives in a rural area, suburban area, or an urban area.
0: It's funny because some of these businesses and we talk a lot about on this podcast about sort of this concept of frustration arbitrage where experience is so bad, not necessarily when you were going through it, but upon reflection and you hit upon a few things. One, going to the doctor's office and last thing you want to do is when you have some weird rash or wart on your face or you're sick that you're going to run into a bunch of people you know, one, so there's like a stigma and a shame about going. Two, you end up getting sick half the time from going. You end up waiting like an hour. They call you when they feel like it. The doctor's rush hasn't prepared. I mean, there's so many things wrong with that experience that having gone through sort of a telehealth before you look at it, you're like, oh, okay, so why would I ever do that again? It's like calling an Uber versus standing outside and waving your arm for a taxi. It's like, Why would you ever go back to doing that? And it seems like such a fundamental shift. Tell me about kind of as you guys built this, and it's been fun to watch the journey over the past five years. What was sort of the early days vision of what the company looks like versus, and we'll get to 2020 in a minute. Let's stick with say 2019. What was the kind of progression of what you guys building out the tech and developing sort of the offering over the years? What has been sort of the main, any, pivots or differences where you're like, oh man, we fully thought this was gonna be a good idea. It was terrible. So we started doing more of this, this surprises this. Any general, just kind of over your thoughts? Yeah, so we have
1: spent the last several years, really number one, building out the tech, as you mentioned. So the patient facing experience, but even a larger investment is on the physician side. Building your own electronic health record is no easy undertaking. There are companies that that is their entire company is it's focused on building an electronic health record. So that was a big undertaking. But we felt again, we needed to empower the physicians to be able to provide them an amazing experience. So they were happy and thus patients were happy. The second one was getting a license to practice medicine in all 50 states, which isn't simple. And some of the things I'm describing, if you look at Why Amazon acquired PillPack, it was to speed up their strategy because healthcare takes time. It's not like you're creating a business to sell purses online where you can open up a store and be dumping money in the product and marketing within two months. So the medical licenses took a long time. Then third, it was getting contracted with insurance plans, which is not easy. That's why doctors don't open up their own doctor's offices anymore is because all this stuff is extremely time-consuming. Getting contracted with health plans in some instances, it's compared to working with the DMV, except there's nowhere to show up and complain to. So that's healthcare, And I think we knew it was going to take time. I think something that was eye opening was it probably took even longer than we expected to take. But we have been super disciplined from a financial perspective and realistic expectations. We knew that there was going to be some type of inflection point in the market. If you look at virtual visits last year, they were only 1% to 2% of all of addressable visits. And so did we know it was going to be a once-in-every-hundred-year flu pandemic that was going to be the tailwind? No, we had no idea. But we knew that there was going to be some type of inflection in the market. And so that's what we have been waiting pretty patiently for. And now we're in a pretty incredible spot.
0: Now that we're on that topic, let's go ahead and talk about it. 2019 rolled around, the new decade is upon us, and the pandemic hit. For me, it was right after I got back from a ski trip and have been going slightly insane ever since. So like most of us, they opened the beaches in LA, so I'm a little bit more back to normal. But talk to me a little bit about what this year has been like. I imagine. For many, first six months of this year feels like an entire decade already, but you not only have a company, but also children and animals. So let's hear about what this has been like for Plush Care.
1: We had a pretty busy flu season. I think this year, I want to say like 40 to 50 million people got the flu. So super busy flu season. And then at the tail end of that in March, we had COVID hit. And so we... We're expecting flu season, we see a spike, and we're expecting to have that start teetering off a little bit, or at least the seasonality of it. Obviously, we're a fast-growing tech company, so we're constantly growing. But instead, from first or second week of March to the last week of March, we had to increase our physician capacity, I think, 4x. Wow. So, I mean, we were busting our ass to get doctors on board. Getting customer support folks to again be able to continue providing this 90 net promoter score experience. And super proud of the team. We were able to continue providing that amazing experience. In addition to the financing, which you mentioned, my co founder and I both had babies a week apart.
0: Oh, God. <laughs>
1: it's been quite the crazy last three months, but definitely exciting.
0: I've enjoyed following the updates for you guys over the years. Were you essentially self-funded for majority of this period? You raised the early seed round and then just now, congratulations, a $22 million, $23 million Series A?
1: $23 million
0: in financing. This was our Series
1: B. I mean, you could have previously called the other one a large seed round, but whatever you want to call it, we had raised about $8 million of capital previously and then $23 million of money, which we recently announced.
0: Congrats. Can you tell us a little bit about the experience for those listeners about raising capital while running a business and during a pandemic? Was this an enjoyable process, a difficult process, both?
1: So we actually had, I can go back to the first time around. Prior to our Series A, it was challenging. We had raised money from individuals and we got to a point, I think we had raised several hundred thousand dollars. And there was a point where I remember pitching VC firms. We had less than 30 days of cash left. And so quickly our financing plan, I told my co-founder, I said, dude, there's no freaking way that we're gonna raise money from a VC. We don't have enough time. And so what we did, we went out and just busted our ass, raised money from individuals. And then on top of that, met an amazing investor, Jeff Richards from GGV. And also the exponent folks in the Angelus round, which you had participated in. And Jeff put in money into that round and we liked him a lot as a former entrepreneur. We didn't even run a process. We had gotten to know him for a little bit. And he's been a great partner building the company to date. And then the most recent round, we're actually planning to raise or run a process in about April, May timeframe. And in a similar situation, we met the folks at Transformation, who are incredible healthcare investors. Two come from Sequoia, leading healthcare investing there. And then one comes from Bank Capital, leading healthcare investing there as well. And we met them at the beginning of the year. They said, what well, do you guys think about us jumping the process? And we both mutually were excited to do so. And it actually, we didn't even get into running the process this year. So people have asked, "Oh, well, how did you raise the round during the pandemic? Fortunately, it was already, the, the details were getting worked out by that point.
0: That's great. Because you you get to hear both sides of it. The early agony of the startup phase, almost out of cash in the bank. And of course, the product market fit and the time where things are running smooth. Talk to me a little bit about the state of the industry. I know there's a couple other players out there. I think there's one large public company, but still, you mentioned it's pretty early days in the infancy in general. Maybe one percent penetration. What does the sort of state of telemedicine look like today with sort of the adoption and competitors as well as an eye towards the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're in the super early days. As I mentioned last year, penetration was 1% to 2% of the total addressable market. So I would say we're in the American online days of the internet.
0: Uh, (laughs) What do you mean? Someone was saying they still make like $500 million from subscription revenues still how I think people that have forgotten or have died or don't even know they have it.
1: I would say the industry, I think the pandemic speeds the adoption curve up probably three to four years. And I think there's going to be multiple types of players. You have hospitals and health systems that want to be able to provide virtual care. And so people like American Well are powering their ability to do that. Same with Epic, integrating telehealth into their EMR. So more of a feature. The approach we've taken is we've said, hey, the One Medical has been super successful. They got started in 2006. Back then, having a kind of fancy, health spa like brick and mortar clinic was innovative where you could book online. Our hypothesis was that, yeah, that was innovative in 2006, but the future is really all those services being able to provide virtual. And again, it's that continuity of care where you're still building a relationship with your physician, even though it's in a virtual environment. Whereas the legacy telehealth has been kind of a one up from a nurse call line. So everybody remembers the days in the 90s where nurse call lines, maybe even before then, got popular on the back of your insurance card. Well, traditional telehealth has been just reach a doctor when you call that call center. And we really think the future is going to be establishing an intimate relationship with a physician virtually and bringing that relationship back that people experienced back in the day when a doctor would show up to your home and being able to provide every American that experience. And so I think there's going to be people that focus in multiple areas of telehealth to date. Again, it's been the market in its infancy. And so everybody lumps every company into telehealth, but we're going to start to see multiple categories within the telehealth category. And so our focus is creating the most amazing member-based primary care experience out there.
0: I was listening to a conversation with one of your doctors years ago, and I'm smiling because at the time, I think you were only open in like five states. And she was like, you know, it's interesting because people would assume the experience would be less intimate. She's like, but I get to see you in your home. Like your kids walk by, your dogs are there. I get to see what's going on in your home. And a lot of people are more comfortable the sterile sort of environment of a doctor's office. And again, with a bunch of people around, it's a different feeling than being in your house. And for the listeners, if you haven't been through it, go to plushcare.com, check it out, sign up, at least try it, see what it feels like. And I'd be hard pressed to know if there's anyone that goes back. You guys have a big splash on your website that's talking about coronavirus testing. You wanna talk to the listeners about that? If they wanna figure out, like most of us, if they had it or not, they got it. What's y'all's approach?
1: Yeah, so what we've noticed actually during this time, a lot of people think that coronavirus visits would be a huge percent of our total visits. And what we're experiencing is that's actually not the case. People are coming to us for kind of traditional primary care visit reasons. That said, we do have coronavirus antibody testing along with coronavirus PCR testing to see if you actually have it. And we can send you in for, we don't do the testing ourselves, but we have a network of partners that will send you in for testing for. And so we've done thousands of tests and we've, to date, I've seen most people for the antibody testing test, I think it's sub 10% are testing positive for having had coronavirus. And it seems like we're seeing spikes here again. So I think time will tell where things go. In the future. But from our perspective, nothing's changed. Here in San Francisco, we were actually way ahead and stopped shutting down. And so our thesis was it could only get worse. Everybody was in their home when this started. And now people are going out and there's no vaccine, there's no great treatment for it. And so if we open things up, it's bound to get worse. So we're hopeful that people are obviously working on vaccines and other solutions and are trying to do our part to keep people healthy.
0: We're recording this late June, listeners. (laughs) So if the world's fallen into a deep, dark pit by the time this publishes around the 4th of July, just give you a little context. My original quarantine plan was to go quarantine in Mammoth, but they shut down all the mountains. I was an early quarantiner, first week of March, but that was quickly squashed. But we're heading to the mountains this summer, so we'll hide out in the mountains of Colorado, which is where my crew is. All right, so you just raised this big chunk of cash. What are you guys going to spend it on? Looking forward to the 2020s. What's sort of the vision? What's the goal for kind of the next one, three, five years?
1: I mentioned the kind of foundation we've laid, how we've been super disciplined financially. The exciting thing for us was we actually didn't need this capital from a runway perspective. We had built a business that was Self-sustainable, and so for us, this was really to put our foot on the gas and take advantage of this infrastructure and platform and foundation that we've laid, and make Plush Care into a household name that everybody knows and the most loved and trusted primary care provider in the U.S. And so, if you think of timing of people thinking about their health, that's another factor in play, and we want to make sure that we are top of mind when people are thinking of their health. So investing. A significant amount into marketing and to product to continue improving the product to make it better into people so our customer support staff our physicians just getting the infrastructure of the company set to go from hundreds of thousands of users to millions of users which i have to pinch myself i still remember the days When I mentioned it was just me putting together the website, answering calls, and James, my co-founder, speaking to patients, like we would go to launch and celebrate somebody booking a visit. And here we are, hundreds of thousands of visits later, going to millions. It's pretty incredible. I remember the financials and the forecast that we were giving people had us getting to this, but we kept looking at each other saying, how the fuck are we going to do that? Like, we can't even imagine what that looks like.
0: We put that on the deck, but we never really thought that <laughs> yeah. was going to happen. <laughs> yeah. I imagine you plan on largely stitting to your knitting. This is such a massive opportunity, simply blocking and tackling and growing seems to be the most obvious. And by the way, is the main channel, like you got your word of mouth, but then is it mostly digital marketing of getting people to funnel to try it kind of out for the first time? Is that the main? And then is it through Instagram? Do you guys do it through Facebook, Google ads? What's your kind of main channels?
1: As I mentioned, providing a good experience doesn't really get people talking about you. You have to provide a wow experience. And so if you look at Plush Care reviews, people literally write in their reviews, wow, that was the most amazing physician experience I've ever had. So 30% of users are coming from word of mouth acquisition, and that continues to go up. And then other channels are digital to date. So organic search, paid search, Facebook, Instagram, we brought on a chief marketing officer last year. that completely did, redid all of our branding and it's going to move us higher up the funnel into more traditional marketing mediums. So you'll be seeing TV advertising from us, podcasts, direct mail, et cetera. So we'll be significantly amping up the amount of marketing spend, which is pretty exciting.
0: I was just laughing because we made one direct mail experiment. So we have like over 40,000 investors and they're all over out of the world. We have almost none in my local community, Manhattan Beach here in Los Angeles. And so we said, let's do a little direct mail. We'll send out a postcard to everyone, let them know we're right down the road. They want to come visit, say hi. And we must have sent out, I don't even know, 10,000 postcards. We got one email or call that said, don't ever email me, call me anything again. And one that returned it in a manila envelope and is like, don't ever mail me again. That was it. <laughs> that was our only experience. But people... It's highly successful. Otherwise, they wouldn't be doing it. We clearly takeaway is don't put Meb's face on the postcard. <laughs> we should have A B tested some more. As far as the main business, you guys have such a massive opportunity of probably a hundred X from where you are now, just in your business. Are there any other kind of alternative business lines that you guys think about or marinate about? Whether it be you may already do this, partnering with corporations, expanding, I don't know, the state of telemedicine internationally. Any other things you guys kick around? We have, and of course, the people using our service are employees of major
1: corporations. And so we do have the benefit teams now reaching out to us saying, hey, how can we more closely partner with Plush Care to get the rest of our employees that might not know about Plush Care access to the service? So That's definitely an opportunity, and you've seen one medical do something similar, create amazing consumer experience, and then go work with companies to expand that and create more awareness. The thing that gets me really excited is the capabilities that we can continue forward with, with some of the stuff that none of us are even thinking about. Like I mentioned, I came from AT&T. Not many years ago, the engineers at AT AT&T said, there's no freaking way we're gonna send TV through copper wires. And look where we are. You get streaming TV through copper wires. And so as I think of the capabilities that we can have, and we're already starting to see some of those, we've partnered with Fitbit, which is public, but you take wearables and the data that our physicians can get from these wearable sensors is incredible. Can we start detecting people have the coronavirus before they're even showing any symptoms or other illnesses, whether it's episodic stuff like that or Chronic issues and prevent them. So if you're pre-diabetic, can we identify that, adjust your lifestyle or if that doesn't work, get you on the proper medication to make sure you don't convert into a diabetic. If you look at what a company called Cologuard is doing, you can now get a colonoscopy in your home. So I think the amount of things that we're going to see patients being able to do in their home is incredible and gets me super excited. And I think in an incredibly frictionless and seamless way again your watch just passively doing a lot of this stuff so that's what gets me excited about the future
0: as you look back over the journey with the company what's been the most memorable moment are there any stories you look back on that particularly stick out or good bad in between anything come to mind
1: a moment i had was when i started we had 30 days of cash left. I dropped out of MBA program at Berkeley. I quit my job. And of course, during a time like that started to reflect and doubt, like, am I passionate about this? Like, is this worth continuing for? And it felt bad because here I thought you know, I was pitching investors, how great of an idea this was. And I thought to myself and said, when I'm busting my ass training for sports, many times my mind is telling me, give up. It's not worth it. And so I think as an entrepreneur, everybody or most people will go through that and experience that. And I think for me, it was very peaceful to have that sports analogy where that's how your mind's programmed. When things get tough, your mind is going to tell you to give up, but it doesn't mean it's the right thing. So when I reflect back, that is one thing that sticks out that I think is relevant for other people out there that are grinding and experiencing obstacles to continue working through
0: it. The life of an entrepreneur is one of lots of dark, deep struggles, and hopefully the light at the end of the tunnel. You guys have certainly made it out the other side, so congrats. Going back to E-Trade, we also ask investors what's been the most memorable investment they've made. Again, it could be good. It could be bad. It could be in between. It could be totally nonsensical. And as you're thinking about it, I reflect back because E-Trade was definitely the first brokerage I ever opened in my own name. And I think it was also the first stock I ever bought on my own. Very meta. E-Trade in my E-Trade account. And they used to even have that funky E-Trade building down on Market Street in San Francisco. I don't know if you remember that. Yep. They're now owned by Morgan Stanley, so who knows what's gonna happen to them, but some fond memories. Anything come to mind?
1: So back in the day trading days, there was one company that I got emotionally attached to, which if you're day trading, that's the fight. I don't have much advice that anybody should take, but that's the first advice i give. Don't get emotionally attached to a stock. And it was 3D Icon Corporation. I don't know if they exist anymore. Again, it was essentially gambling. These were quote unquote penny stocks. I bought it at 15 cents
0: and (laughs) wrote it all the way up
1: to three bucks. And And did you sell it. it at least? I didn't sell as much of it as I should have. But essentially, they were trying to create hologram technology. And again, it goes to show, do your due diligence. Don't get attached to a company unless it's a company you're building yourself. And you know all the ins and outs.
0: I mean, look at the irony. Pretty sure Plush Care pretty soon going to be doing hologram meetings. You can just pull up your iPhone hologram and chat with your doctor and they could examine you virtually. It's all coming full circle. It is. Ryan, this has been a lot of fun. It's rewarding to see both your journey, but also kind of how the future is already here. Where do people go? They want to find out more what you guys are doing. They want to sign up to book an appointment. What's the best place?
1: Yeah, you just go to plushcare.com or download our app on iTunes or the Google Play Store and super simple to sign up and have an appointment
0: Ryan thanks so much for joining us today
1: appreciate it Mab. have a good one
0: podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at Mebfavor.com forward slash podcast if you love the show if you hate it shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com we love to read the reviews please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found my current favorite is Breaker Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.